Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The story of Jesus' life on earth begins in front of the veil that separates us from the most holy place inside the temple. And the story of Jesus' life on earth ends with that veil being ripped away. That's what the author of Hebrews is taking us into this morning. So our text is Hebrews chapter 9. We'll begin with that first paragraph where we're really getting an explanation, a kind of diagram in words of the tabernacle. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a, a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or if you remember your King James Bible, the holiest of holies, literally the holiest of holies, translated here as the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. We'll pause right there and just reflect on, on the architecture of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is divided into two parts. If you imagine the, the space, this building, it's actually uh, 15 feet wide and about 40, 45 feet long. So you can, this is a contained space and is divided into two sections. And the first section that you could enter into, that's called the holy place. Actually, you couldn't enter into it. You'd need to be a Levitical priest to enter into the holy place. But all the Levitical priests, they could enter into this when they were on duty and go into this place. And inside this room, this holy place, there were certain objects arranged, objects of significance, the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. These are the things that were kept in that first section. And then there was an altar of incense and a veil, a veil, a heavy curtain that separated this first section from the section behind it, the most holy place, the holiest of holies. And behind that veil were things of a higher significance. Behind that veil is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant that the people of Israel had been given, and inside it are the tablets that the law is inscribed on, the, the rod of Aaron that budded, and also the bread, the uh, golden urn containing the manna from the wilderness. All of those artifacts are significant, right? It's not just that these are precious things of great value. These are also things that, that have sign value. Right? These are objects associated with God's covenant making. So inside the Ark of the Covenant are these objects that are like the tangible signs of the promise that God has made. And on top of the Ark are the cherubim. It's this glorious thing that, that you wouldn't have been allowed to behold. You couldn't enter into that place behind the veil. This was the holiest of holies, a place where you could not go. But there's something interesting about this description. You, you wouldn't pick up on it 
if you were just reading Hebrews 9. But if you go back and you look at the way things were originally set up, you'll understand that the author of Hebrews seems to get something wrong when he's arranging things inside the tabernacle. Because look at where he places the altar of incense. If you look in what we just read, he places the golden altar of incense with the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil. When in fact, the altar of incense was in the holy place, not in the most holy place. So why? Why does he do this? Well, it helps if you can visualize the scene. So imagine that you've entered into the tabernacle, you've walked into the holy place, and you have a lampstand, you have a table, you have the urn, uh, the bread of the presence is, is present there. If you wanted to go to the altar of incense, where you would walk is to the very back, right up against the veil. Because the altar of incense is oriented towards the holiest of holies. Right? Because incense is offered, as it, as it were, toward the Ark of the Covenant, toward this more holy place. So that altar of incense, although it's physically located in the first section, and the priests who use it are part of the, the priests who can enter in, it's actually oriented towards the holiest of holies. It's sort of like as far as you can go towards that holy place, that most holy place. The altar of incense is as far as the priest is allowed to go, unless he's the high priest, and it happens to be the Day of Atonement. The only time anyone can pass beyond that altar of incense, pass behind that veil, is on that one day of atonement when the high priest is allowed to do this. So the altar of incense stands before the curtain. It faces the holiest of holies. So while it may be located in the holy place, it's associated with the most holy place. That altar of incense is where the story of Jesus' incarnation begins. When we're told the story by the Gospel authors, in Luke's Gospel, the story of Jesus' birth actually begins with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And it happens in a really interesting way. And we think about the birth of Jesus, and we make a big deal about the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth. Right? He's born off to the side somewhere in a manger. Like Nobody really knows about this. There are signs, but, but uh, the people who gather there, they're shepherds. Right? They're not kings. So we think of this as something that was done subtly. It was something done off in the margins. But the story begins at the center, at the center of the Jewish world, at the center of Levitical worship. It happens in Luke chapter 1. If you want to turn your Bible there, I'm not going to read the entire section. I'm going to summarize it for you. But, but the details of this story you would find in Luke chapter 1. There was a priest named Zechariah. He was a Levitical priest, not the high priest, but one of the priests. He was in the division of a priest called Abijah, and you served in divisions, so basically shift work. So when your division was called up, all of the priests in that division would go to the temple and they would serve. And a certain priest would be assigned to offer incense on the altar of incense, and he was assigned by lot. So they drew lots within the division to see which priest would have that duty. And the lot felt this guy, Zechariah. He was an older man. He was married to a, a lady, Elizabeth, who was barren. They had, had no children. And he entered into this place to offer incense. He goes into the holy place. He goes to the altar of incense right before the veil that separates the holy place from the holiest of holies. And as he does this, we're told by Luke that all the people are gathered around. So they can't see him, 
but they're gathered around the temple. There's a multitude of people gathered in worship. And this man enters from amongst the people, enters into this place on their behalf to offer worship. You could imagine yourself in that situation. If we were all gathered outside the building, but we were afraid to enter in. We're like, we can't go into the sanctuary. That's the holiest of holies. We can't go there. But we took you out of the crowd and said, on our behalf, you go into the building. You go into the building to represent us. You offer incense. So imagine yourself doing this, entering into the building, leaving us all behind. And you alone enter into this, this vast, empty space. And as you approach the altar alone to offer incense on behalf of all the people, somebody's there. Somebody's standing there. Somebody who's not a Levitical priest. He's not meant to be there. There's a guy standing next to the altar of incense. It's unprecedented. It had to be a little shocking for Zechariah. And the man who's standing there says to him, you're going to have a son. That son is going to be called John. And he is going to proclaim the coming Messiah. Zechariah, understandably, is is uh, troubled by this. He doesn't know how reliable this information is. And so he questions it. And the response that he gets is this. This is in Luke 1, uh, starting in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So he goes into this copy and shadow of the heavenly places, and next to the altar is standing one sent from the true holy place. Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, declaring, a son will be born to you, and you'll wait in silence, as we were just singing in the psalm. You will wait in silence until he comes. Nobody knew what had happened to Zechariah when he went into the temple. All the people were waiting on him, and when he emerged, he couldn't talk. So they knew something had happened, something serious had happened, but they didn't know the nature of what had taken place. God had made an announcement at the center of their world. At the center of their worship, he had shown himself in a way that was remarkable. Where he had sent for himself a messenger from the true holy place down into the copy in the shadow to reveal what was about to take place. Zechariah, once John the Baptist was born and he regained the power of speech, he prophesied, he praised God. And some of the words he says, this is still in chapter 1, it's a long chapter, but if you skip down to uh, verse 69 of Luke chapter 1, well, let's start in, in verse 68, actually. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's not talking about John the Baptist, who is going to be like his son, who is his son. He's a Levite. He's not from the house of David. He's talking about the line of Judah that we just read about in the book of Revelation. He's talking about the lamb who would be slain. This is the horn of salvation that has been raised up. He's prophesying Jesus. And when he talks about Jesus, the way he talks about him makes it clear what Jesus' significance is. We're skipping down now to 
verse 72. He says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So Zechariah, this Levitical priest to whom the coming of Christ is announced, when he prophesies about the significance of Christ, he calls him the horn of salvation, raised up from the house of David as fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. The Christ who will come fulfills the covenant promises made to our father Abraham. It's all right there in that story, in that prophecy of that Levitical priest. From his own lips, he proclaimed the coming of a better priest. From his own lips, from the experience he had from the angel Gabriel inside the temple, he sees the coming of the one who will fulfill the covenant promises that were made. So you're hearing it from the horse's mouth, as it were. From one of the Levitical priests himself. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is the priest we need. As I said before, though, the very fact that the tabernacle is, is arranged the way that it's arranged tells us something. Right? This tabernacle, this place that is the center of the worship of God, is divided. There's a separation between the holy place and the most holy place. It is a house divided. And the fact that the tabernacle is divided shows that the way into the holy places is not yet open. So think about it. If you were clinging to the old ways, if you were clinging to the Levitical priesthood, to those sacrifices that were still at this time being made in the temple, you're now being told, have you ever thought about the temple and how it was built? If you think about the way the temple is built, doesn't the architecture itself suggest to you a problem? Which is that if, if we as human beings need to be able to draw near to God, why is our holy place built with this big veil where no one is allowed to draw near to God? Like if this is the best that we have, is it enough? Is it enough? If we have a salvation that doesn't allow us to enter into the holiest place of all, is this salvation one to cling to? So, the way that the service worked, the priests are allowed to enter into the holy place. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place. So, the author of Hebrews explains this to us as well. This is our second paragraph. He says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the service of the priest inside the tabernacle and the layout of the tabernacle itself reveals its inadequacies. The priests can enter in, like Zechariah did, to the holy place, but only the high priest can go behind the veil. Only the high priest can enter into the most holy place. And the author of Hebrews is telling us 
This is the Holy Spirit trying to teach you something. The Holy Spirit is revealing something to you through this. We talk about the way that the Holy Spirit communicates to us, the way that he shows us things, right? God reveals himself in his word, but to understand it, we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word for us. Here, the Holy Spirit is illuminating the world. He's showing that there was a sign built into the tabernacle, the physical tabernacle. And all this while, the way we were worshiping was meant to show us the inadequacy of the way we were worshiping. It's amazing. It's why we saw last time, Calvin says, that the rituals and the details, those things were significant. They were important. They mattered. This had to be done the way it was done in order to have the symbolism that it needed to have, in order to send the message that the Holy Spirit intended for it. The way to the holy places is not open. In, in the temple economy, in, in the present age that Jesus entered into, the heart of worship communicated this message of separation. It communicated the presence of a veil between the worshipers and the creator that they worshipped. An impenetrable veil that only the high priest as mediator could pass beyond. And he couldn't pass beyond it on his own merit. He had to pass beyond it with blood, with the shedding of blood. But the blood of the sacrifice allowed him to go behind for a moment into that holy place. But those sacrifices were inadequate. And they were inadequate because, we see in verse 9, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. All of these sacrifices, all that they did, had to do with the body. It had not to do with, with the conscience, with the renovation of the heart that we talked about before. Which is why they had to be repeated over and over again. Right? They were a kind of stopgap measure. Right? They were good for their time. They were good when God revealed them for the age in which he had revealed them. But when the better came, there was no point in clinging to them. Because they lacked the power that, that the new covenant, the new Savior, the new mediator, possessed. So the high priest offers sacrifices that actually cannot change the conscience of the worshiper. They cannot perfect, they cannot make whole the hearts of those that they're made for. But Christ's sacrifice can. The sacrifice of Christ does do this. It does perform this work. Jesus offers sacrifice that does change the heart. Now I said already that, that it's interesting to see that the story of the incarnation begins in the temple, but also it ends there as well. When Jesus is crucified, something really interesting happens inside the temple, something extraordinarily significant that Matthew reports in his gospel. In Matthew chapter 27, in verse 51, we read these words, Behold, the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, in verse 50, Matthew says Jesus gave up his spirit. And the very next thing he records is that the veil, the curtain in the temple, was torn from top to bottom. 
And it's significant, of course, that it was torn from top to bottom. If you were going to go in and try to tear it, even if you had the strength of, of Samson, you'd need to do it from bottom to top because it's kind of hard to reach to the top. But this veil is torn from top to bottom. The separation that had existed, the division that had once been the case within the temple was no more. The moment Christ died, the veil separating the worshipers from the God they worship was torn in two. It was torn apart immediately. Once he yielded up his spirit, the veil was torn. Matthew records other things. The earth shook, he said. The rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. This was not one of those pious synagogue building centurions. He just happened to be on the scene witnessing these things, and what he saw was a little unprecedented. He didn't see that the veil ripped apart. What he saw were, was the grave ripped apart. And people coming up out of the grave and proclaiming Christ. Death being overturned. These signs accompanied the death of Christ. Something was accomplished in the death of Christ. Uh, some damage that was done at the fall was undone. And that moment where all the rules were suspended. And people were coming up out of the grave. And the earth was opening up. And the veil was ripped apart was a moment of promise, like showing us things to come. Here's what you have to anticipate in Christ. Here's the nature of the work that I am doing, that I am accomplishing. So Christ's sacrifice opened the way to the holiest of holies. For people before Christ, the temple, the holy place was divided. And for us, the, the tabernacle is one. There is now no veil separating us from the holiest of holies. There is no veil separating us from God so that we have the freedom to draw near to Him. We have that freedom because of the sacrifice that Christ made, which was different than what was done before. It was a different kind of sacrifice, and it happened in a different place as well. And it's significant that it went that way. Our last paragraph, Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This was a better sacrifice, and it was made in a better place than the old sacrifices were made. Zechariah entered into the copy and shadow, the, the earthly temple the place that was built with human hands, Christ entered into the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly tent, the place not made with human hands, not part of creation, the real heavenly holy places. Christ entered into those places and offered himself up. 
He didn't offer a substitute for Himself. He didn't need the blood of goats to atone for His own sins so that He could then make sacrifice. He was the unblemished sacrifice. He was the priest who offered up Himself in the true temple. Doing once for all time the thing that had been imitated over and over again just as a copy, just as a a little bit of foreshadowing. All those animal sacrifices had existed to foresignify Christ. And now Christ came and made the, the one sacrifice that need never and can never be made again. All of those old sacrifices that were made in that, that shadow tent, that copy, all of those had done, he says, was to purify the flesh. Like an outward ritual purification. But the sacrifice of Christ purifies our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. It's a deeper sacrifice that transforms us. When we think about the sacrifice of Jesus, probably the thing uppermost in our mind is what it saves us from. Right? That the, the shed blood of Christ atones for our sins. It saves us from condemnation. But it also saves us to something. Like it restores to us the ability, the, the, the trajectory of the life we were meant to have. Right? It makes us back into people of purified conscience. People now who can die to dead works and now be alive to serve the living God as we were intended to do. The death of Christ is significant, not just for what it saves us from, but what it restores us to. Makes us what we ought to be. Going back to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, that Levitical priest, as he prophesied about the horn of salvation, Jesus Christ, who would fulfill the covenant, when he described him at the very end of his prophecy, listen to the words that Zechariah said, talking about why it is that God had done this great thing. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We sat in darkness and then Christ came and behold a great light like sunrise from on high suddenly shone down upon us and all was revealed to us. The saints before Christ, they had only seen dimly Not all had been revealed to them. They didn't see the full significance of of even the gifts that had been given to them. But when Christ came like the sun, He illuminated everything. And He illuminated for us the significance of our salvation, but also the, the way our feet could travel to find the peace that we long for. Because of sin, we find ourselves in rebellion. We find ourselves at odds with the God who made us. Christ comes, as a shining light, He reveals to us the the way to peace. When you think about yourself, and you think about your own inward alienation from the God who made you, you can imagine your sin as if it were a heavy curtain or a veil. The veil that was stretched between the holy place and the most holy place. The veil that, that even... Most priests could not pass behind. That barrier 
can represent for us the barrier of our sin that separates us from God. And the beauty of the light that Christ shines is to say that the barrier separating you from the God who made you, from the God that you long to commune with, that barrier has now been torn from top to bottom. The veil of sin separating you has been divided by Christ so that you need not be divided from Him. We were made to be with Him. Which is why all of our lives... We've longed for Him, and not finding Him, we've, we've found substitutes for Him. We've found other things to worship. Things that do not ultimately satisfy. But for a season, do. All of our lives, we've spent as worshipers. As people who want to put something on the pedestal. And if it can't be God, we've put other things there in its place. And it's led to futility, it's led to frustration, it's led to despair in some cases, to blindness in others. But because Christ has torn down the veil that separated us from God, we don't need to worship anything in His place. Because Christ has torn down the veil through His sacrifice, through the shedding of His blood, we can worship the one we were made to worship. We can worship the God who made us to be His worshipers. The light of Christ shows us the path of peace. And and the way of peace is the way of drawing near to God. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is this. That through Christ's sacrifice, we can now approach the place that it used to be was unapproachable to any of us. It used to be that only the high priest with the shedding of blood could enter for a moment. And now we can go boldly when we go with Christ as our high priest. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. Thank you.